Imagine this morning if we could gather on this platform Oprah Winfrey, Jack Nicholson, Donald Trump, Kid Rock, and Mick Jagger, all right here. And we'd ask them their philosophy of life to tell us about their lifestyle. We'd come pretty close to having the book of Ecclesiastes. As you know, we've been looking at each book of the Bible, one book each Sunday. There are five books in the middle of the Old Testament called the Poets. It begins with Job, Psalms, Proverbs. This morning we come to Ecclesiastes, the fourth out of the five. Next week, the Song of Solomon. By the way, the abbreviation of Song of Solomon is SOS. So I've been sending up smoke signals. Uh, help the boy. So be praying for me with the message next Sunday. But this morning, we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is totally unique among the 66 books in the Bible. There's been a lot said about it. Philip Riken, the president of Wheaton College, an outstanding Christian scholar, said it's the most contemporary book in the Bible. Two American novelists commented. Herman Melville said it's the truest of all books. That goes beyond the 66 in the Bible. He said it's the truest of all books. Thomas Wolfe said, it's the noblest, the wisest, the most powerful expression of man's life on earth. The book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually a transliteration of the Greek word Ecclesiastes, which means the preacher. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Koaleth, which means the collector or gatherer, the writer, the philosopher. And so it's a book of philosophy. And the reason we say it stands alone among all the other books in the Bible is it is the only book in the entire Bible written entirely from man's perspective. All 65 of the other books are all from God's perspective. This is the one of the 66 that is all from man's perspective. Now, it's written by Solomon. If you would open your Bibles with me, it begins chapter 1, verse 1, clearly identifying the author, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And immediately, he goes on to give the summary of his view of life. Now, let me just point out to us, when it comes to intellectual firepower, no one had more than Solomon. He was learned in botany, biology, horticulture, zoology, geology, philosophy, physiology, He had written more than 3,000 proverbs and composed 
more than a thousand songs. He knew multiple languages. The wisest man on earth, he was called. But it doesn't end there. When it comes to fame and notoriety, kings and rulers from all over the world would come to sit at Solomon's feet. The queen of Sheba traveled 1,200 miles and gave him a gift in gold equivalent to $15 million to sit at his feet for an afternoon. He was so well known and highly regarded. And regarding wealth, gold was as common as paving material. The things that would normally in an affluent, opulent setting be made of silver, his were made of gold. Goblets, which would normally be silver, his were gold. Uh, shields that would defend against enemies in an in a affluent area, they would be made of silver, his were made of gold. His national treasury abounded with more wealth than they could steward, and they became the China of today, they were lending to the world. Power and influence. This was Israel at its peak, at its heyday. They had peace on all sides. And when this man, who had more wealth, more influence, more smarts, and more fame... Than anyone else, when he wrote his philosophy of life, he says right away, chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, does that sound like God to you? Now, listen, listen, this is written by a man who had everything. Speaking to us who don't. With a loud message, you who don't, don't waste your time thinking that if you did, you would find fulfillment. Because fulfillment was never intended to be found in those things. Not in your intelligence, not in your education, not in your fame and fortune, not in your wealth, not in your power and your influence. And all the things that this world can give you, it's not going to be found there. I can tell you I've been there and it doesn't. You know those roadside um, little markets, a van will pull up, an old uh, 48-year-old van will pull up on the side of the road and will take out pictures and will kind of prop them up against the hubcap, and they'll often be black velvet Elvis, you know. Does anybody have one? If I had one, it would be here. I'm not speaking for or against those paintings, but black velvet has a way of bringing out the brilliance of the highlights in the foreground. The book of Ecclesiastes is black velvet. It's the black backdrop of how utterly meaningless life is apart from a personal relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. 
Now, this book uses the phrase under the sun 30 times. And at first, I had heard this a long time ago and I dismissed it. But the more I've read it, I've reread this book at least a dozen times in the past three weeks. And I think they're right when they suggest that the phrase under the sun limits the worldview of this book. There is nothing beyond the sun recorded in this book. It's the best you can do under the sun. Thirty times. Thirty-one times the words vapor or breath are used to refer to how quickly this life comes and goes. Vapor. Breath. It's gone. But 33 times it uses the word meaningless. It reminds me of the last phrase of the movie Bridge Over the River Kwai. Has anybody seen that movie? It's a four star, like it's got the highest rating. Um, I had never seen it. And last Christmas, I made my whole family, all of our children, sit with me and watch Bridge Over the River Kwai. Halfway through, my kids are getting restless. Now, my kids will do anything I ask them. And so I asked them, no, we're going to watch this movie. And they said, Dad, this is, this is pitiful. I, I said, I'm sure it's going to get better. And it kept getting worse and worse. And then the culmination, I said, I'm sure it's going to get better. And then the last scene, the good guys get killed, the bad guys get killed, and the one cynic in the whole thing, the last scene, it zooms in on the guy with barely alive, blood's coming down his face, with his elbow leaning on a rock going, madness, sheer madness. And then the credits start rolling. I lost a lot of credibility. Madness. I can't tell you how many times my kids have have said, Oh, Dad, madness. If nothing else, it has come in handy just to kind of have a phrase out of the movie to repeat once in a while. Madness. We would be on the tee, shank a tee shot. Madness. Sheer madness. One of their kids poops in the diaper. Madness. Sheer madness. But it's the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. Madness. Now, what this book says... Is this world, though created by God, was not created to fill the void that every man, woman, and child ever born has been born with. There's a void inside everyone that this world was never intended to satisfy. When Mick Jagger gets up and croons... I can't get no satisfaction. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. When Donald Trump says, I don't make deals for money. I've got enough, much more than I'll ever need. I do it just to do it. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Elvis said, fame and fortune, how empty can they be? 
the movie Wall Street. Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed will save the U.S. Dostoevsky and Brothers Karamazov. The result of the rich is isolation and suicide. The result of the poor is envy and murder. Aristotle Onassis, perhaps the wealthiest man before he died, after a certain point, money is meaningless. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Bill Murray, the comic, said, awards are meaningless to me. Jim Carrey said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so then they can see that is not the answer. It's Jim Carrey. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Tony Dungy, who led his team to the Super Bowl, the Indianapolis Colts, is now uh, he gives color commentary. Hey, if you're saying... I'm working for income or to increase my status. If that's all there is, then I will one day find out it is all meaningless. Jack Nicholson said, early on, when I was alone two or three nights in a row, I'd start writing poems about suicide. And if those who seem to have it all, had it all, why is it they can't keep their marriages together? Every divorce is painful. But this year there were so many. Maria Shriver, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sandra Bullock, Jesse James, Paula Abdul, Tiger Woods, Jennifer Lopez, Mark Anthony, Kim Kardashian, Kobe Bryant. And the list goes on and on. What's going on? What's going on is, under the sun, you won't find the truth. You won't find the ultimate meaning to life. Now walk with me in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, verse 13 He exposes intellectualism. I devoted myself to study and the exploring of wisdom, all that has been done under heaven. There it is again. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. The next verse, he says, all of them are meaninglessness, are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Later in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, of the writing of books, there is no end. It's the vanity of intellectualism. It's great to learn, but in your learning, get wisdom. Not just the accumulation of information. Come to chapter 2, verse 1, he exposes hedonism. Come now, I will test you with pleasure and find out what is good. Pleasure, he said, but that also proved to be meaningless. Then you come to chapter 2, verse 4. 
workaholism. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens, parks. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water uh, to water the groves to nourish the trees. I bought slaves. And he goes on and on about all that he had acquired. And materialism. I amassed silver and gold for myself. The treasury of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and had a harem of women. The delights of the heart of man. And he says at the end of verse 11, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You come to chapter 3, verse 13. And here we come to references to God. And even you, you may say the verse is in the book of Ecclesiastes, God planted eternity in their hearts. It's a powerful truth. And it says, chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And it almost sounds like Christian advice. But the references here to God are not a personal God. They are an impersonal force. Many of our people have been led, delivered from addictions. And we thank God for even the 12-step programs that have helped people deal with their chemical dependencies. But a 12-step program, as you know, refers and points everyone to a higher power. Sometimes people encounter Christ. At that point. But many don't. And what it is, is deism. It's the acknowledgement, theoretically, to a distant higher power. And that's what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, verse 13. That everyone um, may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that men will revere Him. That's as close as we get. But it's still a distant reference to any kind of personal God. In fact, quickly, he moves from that reference to God will do whatever He wants to fatalism, fatalism, chapter 3, verse 19, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. If one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animals. Now, does that sound Christian? Because it's not. It's fatalism. So this deism, this theism, is not a Christian view of God. It's an indirect, oblique reference to a higher power. But this world, men are no different than animals, is what it says. Woven through the book, these same themes come time and time again. 
And the echo keeps coming. Meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. You come to chapter 9. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love and hate await him. There's all this uncertainty. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked. The good and the bad. The clean and the unclean. They all share a common destiny. That's not the revelation that we get in the rest of Scripture. This is a fatalism and a relativism. Chapter 9, verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. He does move into moralism. Verse 7. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. Now that's moralism. It's the best you can do is love your wife and take care of your kids and enjoy your life. But even that is meaningless. No, it gets darker and darker. Just when you think there's a glimmer of light coming in the book of Ecclesiastes, it quickly closes because that too is meaningless. Now, why would God include in His Bible one entire book that focuses on the bleak madness of life separated from a personal relationship with God in Christ. He did it to give us a black velvet backdrop against which the revelation of His Son would shine. No, it is true. Ecclesiastes is perhaps the most moving messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. There were four guys that were stopped at a restaurant and they overheard each other talking. And they were talking about prayer. They found out they were all believers. In fact, they found out three were preachers and one uh, repaired uh, telephone wires up in the air. They were discussing the most effective prayer posture. The one preacher said, well, kneeling. When I pray, i got to get on my knees. I humble myself before the Lord. Kneeling is the best posture. Then another responded, oh, no. I stand and I lift my hands before the Lord. And I walk, I pace back and forth, and I find that to be the best posture. The third said, no, no, you, you're both wrong. I lay flat on the ground. I, I humble myself and get right down, and God comes and draws near to me. And the fourth guy who repaired electric wires couldn't handle it anymore. He said, I've got to speak up. I know you're men of the cloth, but I must correct you. I've got one that has that beat. 
Try hanging upside down from an electric wire. I find that a very effective way to pray. <laughs> That's what happens in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are held out there. We've all looked up to those who have more than we do. We've all thought if we could only have a little bit more, we would then be fulfilled. And now the one who had it all comes back and says, it's not where it's at. Dr. Francis Schaeffer said, if I have one hour on an airplane seated next to a person that doesn't yet know Christ, I take the first 50 minutes and talk about what it means to be lost. About what it means to be without any hope. A meaningless existence. And then the last 10 minutes I present Christ. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It sets up the coming of the Messiah. No, the Old Testament refers to Jesus as the desired of nations. This Messiah. The one that every man, woman, and child ever born deep down longs for. When it says God put eternity in their hearts, what it means is He put the echo, the gnawing, disturbing, unsettling echo of emptiness, meaninglessness, madness, apart from a personal relationship with the living God. And so when Jesus came, He could come to the woman at the well and say to her, Woman, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. But I will give you water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. And on another occasion, He stood up at a feast in front of a large crowd and He said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And out of His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus could say, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life, that you might have it abundantly. That's what Jesus gives. Now, you cannot read the book of Ecclesiastes the same way you read every other book in the Bible. Because it's not like any other book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes comes to the conclusions of a person who never did Come to faith in Christ. And you know when Jesus came, it was said of Jesus, one greater than Solomon is here. Ka-ching! That's what I'm talking about. One greater than Solomon. Solomon in all of his wisdom, in all of his smarts, unfortunately, he didn't live by the same rules he wrote. He didn't. Professing to be wise, he became a fool. His life did not end well because he broke half the principles he taught. Maybe all of them. He wrote in Proverbs 5, Husbands, drink water from your own well. Be infatuated with the wife of your youth. A lovely doe. A graceful hind. 
Sometimes I call Sherry my lovely doe. She is still the wife of my youth. Amen. Sometimes I'll greet her in the bathroom in the morning. How's the wife of my youth? But Solomon, one wasn't enough. He had about 1,800. Now that's stupid. There's nothing smart about that. He didn't live by it. What greater folly is there than to have all the wisdom and yet not live by it? We'd be better to take our pea-sized brain or whatever in comparison and use it fully for the glory of God. To take what we've got and use it for Him. No, if you're here this morning, you know, in a sense right now, I see three groups of people. First of all, there are those that you've already staked your claim and you know everything I'm talking about and you're sitting there, you're jumping up and down, your heart's beating faster, you're licking your lips, you're saying, oh, this is good, this is good, thanks for taking me back. It's Everything you're saying is so true. Well, great. You're welcome. But then there's another group. There's a group... You have been looking in all the wrong places to fulfill the void inside your soul. You've never realized that there is a personal God who loves you and demonstrated that for you in Jesus Christ. And today you can meet Him. But there's a third group. It's the group, and some of us I know this morning are sitting here, We have trusted Christ as our Savior. We know that what Ecclesiastes teaches is true. But we have, like unfaithful lovers, we've left our first love and have wandered off to try to find fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life in the wrong places. And today the Lord calls you home. It calls you home. Your life doesn't need to be confined to what's under the sun. There's another whole world on the other side of the sun, so to speak. Where the real meaning and fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. So would you allow the Lord to call you home today? And would you say yes? And if you're in that second group, today can be your day. And would you just pray with me right now? If you come today and you want to put your faith in Christ, you've known about God, you've been perhaps a deist or a theist, but you've never been born again. Would you today just pray with me, Lord Jesus, I repent of living life on my own. And I open the door of my heart to receive salvation through Your sacrifice. Come and live in me. Pour Your love into my heart, into my life. Welcome me home. I receive new life in Jesus Christ. Amen.